0: and they will share with us their actionable insights and best practices that can help empower you to create an engaged elite workforce. Here's the show. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Impact Show. I am your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. What do you need to watch out for when it comes to teamwork kryptonite? The person that's going to help us answer this question is joining us today. She's got a background as a certified change management specialist. She's a certified talent optimization leader with the predictive index and a neurofacilitation practitioner. She's had the privilege of bringing her thought leadership as a speaker, trainer, consultant to a number of Fortune 500 companies, and prior to her current role as a director of people in culture. She was a consultant for nearly a decade and the CEO and founder of Changing Greatly, a culture and talent consultancy specializing in creating psychologically safe, inclusive cultures where humans love to work. So Maura Barkley, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here to have this discussion with you.
0: We are setting up for a really fast-paced conversation. So before we dive into the meat of the discussion, why don't you fill the listeners in on Anything that I might've missed in that intro that you feel is important? The
1: thing that's impacted me the most when it comes to being in an inclusive environment, my own lived experience was being a professional firefighter and being one of a very small handful of women. It was my first experience of what it means to belong and what it means not to belong. And then feeling like you need to work and adapt and code switch so that your peers will accept you. And in terms of firefighting, I learned a lot about teamwork in very high stakes environments. We could say millions of dollars is high stakes, and I would contend that life-threatening circumstances far exceed the jeopardy there. So having worked in those very high stakes environments in a culture that was not necessarily a fit for me was my entree into the world of people and culture. And that's where I learned a lot of the hard lessons that I bring to the work that I'm doing today.
0: So you've had an interesting path to HR leadership. I think it would be valuable for you to share with the listeners a little bit more detail about that path. I'd be curious to understand how those non-traditional experiences and pathways into HR informed how you handle the people leadership role? I'll
1: give you the cliff notes here and try to land the plane. So I've had a very non-traditional career trajectory. I'm what you might call one of these deep generalists because I would try something and get as good as I possibly can when I hit the ceiling on it. I would find something else that interested me and I would pivot. So I spent a a great deal of time in the mind body world, working as a master instructor in therapeutic yoga and being a teacher trainer. So I've always really gravitated to these managerial or leadership roles. So it was all about mentoring and finding moments where we could very delicately pursue honesty over harmony. That's a foundational piece that in the teaching aspect, I've been a teacher and a leader every in every job I've ever had, regardless of how outside of leadership or management it might appear to be. I somehow manage to be given the seat of leadership everywhere I go. There's something about me inspires people to give me authority or leadership. So I've leveraged that in a way that I feel is in the highest integrity and very gently urged people into as much truth as possible in every environment I've ever worked. A lot of the lessons that I learned were negotiating these types of roles with these types of skills and always in the background foundationally was looking for direct feedback, giving direct feedback, creating environments where direct feedback was tolerated so we could uh, optimally move forward. It's always been about helping people work at their capability, not their capacity. And to me, that's the heart of HR. And one of the tools, one of the levers that I pulled to do that is creating psychological safety, high trust environments. That's where these direct conversations, where people actually come together and cohes as a team, can happen.
0: You mentioned something in terms of your career path, where you you spent significant chunks of time in various roles, trying to maximize your learning in those roles before you moved on to the next thing, and that next thing was often quite different from the thing that you were currently doing. How is that informed? your strategy when it comes to building out teams?
1: Everything from the firefighting where I was invited behind the blue curtain, as it were, and these men allowed themselves to feel comfortable enough that they would just be themselves in front of me. Now, part of that was a little bit of of privilege because they're not accustomed to having to adjust. And part of it was comfort. So it, it depended on who was there. So firefighting really gave me this insight into the male psyche and different kinds of approaches of leadership and work styles among all the men and how to make adjustments and shifts in order to get the most out of All of us seeing the different leadership styles and and work styles and seeing how people responded to it and seeing the men who are all about their lieutenant's bars and this command and control leadership style and how that affected their engineers and their firefighters versus the ones that were all like, hey, I need your eyes. I, I need you to tell me what so that we're all safe and I don't have the answers all the time. And that sort of servant leadership style and watching how the how their crews responded to them. It was an awesome microcosm of work styles and leadership styles that absolutely impacted me being a leader. The mind-body work, it uh, really helped me connect to people as humans and recognize that was the humanity piece of my learning. Where we work with people, we, we're all humans, and these human bodies having an experience. So it brought this sort of humanity to the work. Where sometimes in professional or in professional capacities, I think people want to distance themselves from what happened at home before they showed up. And there's professionalism, but there's also get in the ways, is this creating an obstacle, or are now you going to project your frustration onto your team. maybe we should just have a moment, right? So that mind body work really put me in the, in the headspace of we're humans first, which was super helpful. And the film and television work, wow, it, it gave me such incredible, I would say, a desire to balance the needs because I can't always do it, but I have a desire to do it. the, the motivation to balance and try to represent every team's need, to all different teams.
0: When you look at your experiences earlier in your career working in a command and control environment, and you've gone through this transition where you've taken a human-centric approach to people leadership, there's gotta be a a game-changing realization there between those two approaches. So what was it that you realized that needs to happen between those two opposite poles for people to build a high-performing team? There's
1: a lot of aspects to this, but as far as, and, and I want to be clear, there is a time and a place for command and control. It's needed. I promise you that Sully was command and control all day long in that cockpit when he took it in order to save everybody and land that plane on the Hudson. There is absolutely a time and place for command and control, certainly in the military, certainly on any critical incident. And even within the fire department, there's a time and a place. And if you're outside of that environment with that particular style, you're going to lose people. They won't respect you. That's been the thing. And I think that the critical piece of of the transition is recognizing that People will give you the leadership and the respect because they see that you respect them and that you're not relying on your role or the title or your years in the service, your salary, your network, your alma mater, or the bars on your collar. You're not relying on any of that in order for people to respect and follow you. People respect and follow you because they know that you have their best interests. And knowing that you care about them, that is probably the single greatest lever a leader can pull, that they genuinely care about their team. And the way that they show that is through sincere conversation and a lot of this, like direct feedback and asking a lot of questions and being. Team-oriented, team-centric, being more people-centric than task. And you can still get plenty done. And I know that very many work styles are task over people. I get that. However, when it comes to leadership, this is one way that we can build equity is through genuine care of our teams. And also the teams know, hey, when we're in a sprint or when some stuff is going wrong or we're in the middle of a critical incident, whether it be in the emergency services or on a team. The communication changes, but when you have the respect, nobody thinks twice about it. It's when you lean on titles and all these other superficial things because you don't trust yourself as a leader, that's when you run into trouble. I think a lot of this comes down to the psyche of the leaders themselves, and we're seeing this all play out now. And I think men have been painfully indoctrinated into this hyper-masculinity. And a lot of men, a lot of men are waking up to this and shaking off the indoctrination saying, no, this doesn't work, it's not sustainable. And oh, by the way, we're not making the best decisions because we don't have women and people of color in here.
0: I get your point about there's a time and place for command and control. I also understand how taking a human first approach has its place as well. But one of the things that you mentioned was the key to all of that is communicating to your team and your people that you really care and treating them with the respect, taking the time to build those individual uh, relationships, to build a- an environment of trust and respect. That takes a long time. In today's world of work, Everybody is about maximize shareholder value as fast as possible. And you often have teams that are running super lean. So when you're looking at that contrast, we know what best practices look like, but we also know what the resource allocation looks like as well. How do you still satisfy the shareholder expectations while building that trust, that psychological safety, that environment of, of respect? What have you seen that works really well that, that, that allows you to do both things?
1: two words people data and here's two other words talent optimization one of the reasons that i am a predictive index partner is because i don't want to have to guess how to connect with people i want to see some predictive data that's going to shorten that path for me so i'm not psychic i got other things to do tell me how i need to connect with this tell me what this person's this person needs to feel like i care what is it now first of all you have to be willing to actually care—that's step one. That takes zero time. Also, it takes zero dollars to be kind and to extend compassion. Zero dollars and zero time. It can be a conversation. It can be one sentence. So I would argue that these sort of moments where the care is shown and compassion is shown, those are momentary. Perhaps it, it, it can—it literally be one email or one sentence. It depends on the situation. However, from a, a I want to say a tactical point of view or an operational point of view, uh, because I'm a pragmatist and from the Midwest, I like my data. This talent optimization gives us an opportunity to look at the uh, predictive models of what drives people so we can understand how they're going to behave and more importantly, what they need to thrive. I use the one-to-one relationship guide to see oh, this person needs a lot of this. They need less of this. If I act this way, they're going to feel ignored. If I act this way with their work style, it will help them feel seen or appreciated or whatever it is. And if you look at all the research coming out right now about engagement, it is not about giving at, that's just a gendered thing I was about to say. It's not about giving kudos. It's about getting the right kudos to the right people for the right thing what it's calling upon leaders to do is get specific care enough to get specific. It won't take that much more time. And I would also offer the following. If you want to have the shortest distance between maximum capacity for your people, which means you want that discretionary effort. You want them. You want that loyalty. You want those high E If you want that, you need to show you care. All the research is in This is not my opinion. And that's what the shareholders want.
0: Wow, it's been a great conversation so far. Make sure you join the HR Impact community where we gather a community of HR leaders just like you. This is a space where top people leaders share actionable insights and practical playbooks. Sign up today as a member for the community, get updates on the latest HR resources and exclusive event invites. You can join the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. And now, back to the show. I really like that. It reminded me of a conversation that we had with Yasmeen Duncan, who's the chief people officer of Magnolia Bakery. And one of the things that she was faced with when she joined that organization, and it's a smaller organization, she was asking the question, how do I take the guesswork out of people leadership from the time that somebody is actually even hired And one of the things that she developed and rolled out, and she's been doing that in several of her roles, was an onboarding inventory. So in this inventory, she has her managers fill this out In terms of their leadership style or management style as part of the onboarding process and then the new hire actually fills out their version so your first sort of deep meeting is going over how do you like to lead, how do you like to be managed, what works what doesn't work so your level setting and taking the guesswork out and it your conversation about the predictive index took me immediately to that. So if you're running with limited resources, if you're running on a lean team, if you have a pace that is emphasizing some other stuff, you have to be looking at things that takes the guesswork out of your people leadership process. So I wanna tie all of this back to one of the things that I mentioned uh, earlier on in the conversation. And that is the idea of What are the things that show up when you're building a high performance team that can be kryptonite for that team? So tell us a little bit about things that you've seen that really derail your efforts in building that high performance team.
1: I think this is something I actually saw a LinkedIn post about, which is people who are oriented towards advantaging themselves and their own self-interest in order to climb the ladder. And certainly this is not exclusive to men by any means. That said, men are, I would say, generally speaking, more culturally conditioned to be aggressive and competitive in this way. And there's a difference. It's one thing to be competitive by bringing your best, wanting be, being inspired by other people that you're working with being as good or better than you and wanting to bring your best to your work. That is wholly different than being competitive by trying to knock your colleagues down. That is teamwork kryptonite. That will kill a team. It will kill productivity. Whenever you see a a team member who's doing this, and again, different between competitive and being competitive by knocking people down, very different. When this behavior is witnessed when it emerges, it's essential to, to, I would say, to manage it immediately. And sometimes it is a matter of people being coached or mentored to abandon the behavior and take up a different behavior. Sometimes that habit evolution can work. And other times it just means that he or she is not aligned with the core values of the company and or the team. And that's something that can actually be sussed out through the predictive index.
0: There's a couple of different phrases that I use when talking about what you just described. I used to call it we don't hire the productive a-hole. The <laughs> the other part of it you just talked about if you're dead set on being That way you can, you need to find an organization that's wired that way. And I immediately went to GE, old school GE under Jack Welch, which was every year, no matter how long you've been there, if you're in that bottom 10%, you're whacked, so that's the perfect culture for those sort of those personalities. But my question is this, you mentioned, you can always use the PI as a way to suss that out, what are some of the things that you can ask in. hiring process or the interview process that will help you determine if you're dealing with one of these sorts of people.
1: The one thing I love about the predictive index is that it has what's called an interview guide based on when you're hiring for a role, you build a very precise job target that has the drives that would allow a person to thrive in the role. And when you get candidates, it tells you how good a match they're organic native drives are. And if there's some that aren't in alignment with the job target that's been created, an interview guide, AI does all of this for us. An interview guide helps you ask questions into the gaps, wherever the pattern is out of alignment. I've been relying upon predictive index to help me ask questions into the gaps to make sure that this person is not going to be that way. I find it's rare that someone who is that level of a-hole is trying to hide it because that's not their brand. Their brand is like, Hey, I'm not for everybody. And I get it done. And doesn't matter how I get it done. That comes out, I think you'll find you don't need to dig very far. Most people who are a-holes don't care what you think about
0: a great conversation. Maura, we covered a lot of ground in uh, a relatively short amount of time. Before we sign off, I want you to package this up into a framework. When we're thinking about building a high-performance team, what are some of the th- key things that you want our listeners to pay attention to as they navigate this process?
1: One of the first things that I did when I got into this company that I'm currently working with was I, because it's a small company, I had the luxury of being able to have a one-on-one with every single person. And it's these check-ins, it's these... It's sincere inquiry in a anonymous protected environment. So the first thing that I found to be helpful is give people a safe place to deposit their truth. It can be with you, it can be with your team, it can be, it has to be somewhere. People need to feel like there's a place where they can be completely authentic. And that's that then you start to build that muscle. Once you gather some data and and surveys can be good, but a conversation is best. I highly recommend step one, having real conversations with as much anonymity and as much protection for the people as possible and couch it that way, let them know. Hey, if something comes up, I, I have to, we have to have a conversation if this information needs to go somewhere, but the idea here is it doesn't go anywhere. It's just between you and me. Get that real data. That's number one. Number two, Work with teams in such a way that you can bring that level of psychological safety to the teams. This needs to be a facilitated discussion because every leader has a different way of doing things, and recognize that you can't, you gotta, you have to build the psychological safety. Throughout the conversation, you can't come in and say, I dubbed this a psychologically safe space because all the stuff that happened before that moment is still active in the group. All those dynamics are real and they're very present. So I I have a concept called the first domino. And when you're building psychological safety, and it might take a number of repeated conversations and meetings with the teams, the first domino is someone who has the most power and influence, Ideally an executive, a senior VP, a junior VP, or the leader of the team itself, having them show some vulnerability if they're able to. So one of my favorite questions to ask executives in these discussions is what are your pet peeves? And that sounds like a really mundane question, but let me tell you something. It is magic because suddenly no one needs to read their mind and everyone's, oh, That makes complete sense. And now I can actually change some things. So that's a communication cadence thing that we never would have gotten to had I not asked about a pet peeve. So it sounds silly, but it, it was magic. And that because that executive was vulnerable, it knocked over the first domino and everybody else started to get very real. And then we started to get to some psychologically safe spaces with this group. So that's another thing that I would recommend is having these conversations with these groups. And I think the the third thing that I would recommend is taking the time to facilitate operating agreements with the teams. Now, if you look, work in a thousand person, hopefully if you work in a thousand person company, you're not all by your lonesome HR, you have a whole team. So facilitating these operating agreements helps identify and operationalize the microcultures of these departments. And it also helps them have this sense of cohesion and it operationalizes the core values of the team that operate under the umbrella of the core values of the business. And that has been tremendous.
0: Last thing before I close down, where can people find you?
1: Find me on LinkedIn, Maura Barclay. I'm there. I'd love to collaborate with people. So please feel free to find me there and hit me up.
0: I appreciate you hanging out with us. And to those who have been listening to the conversation, there's a couple of things that I want to add to the takeaways. I think one of the things that stands out about this conversation is Maura's own experience. She comes from a non-traditional background. And I think people at small to mid-size organizations who are looking to build out a high performance organization, you have to apply the path that Mora took and see what lessons you can pull into your own people strategy. So everybody likes that that cookie cutter or that really well-framed out position description. And here's what this person looks like. Don't be afraid of looking for that non-traditional profile because oftentimes they can actually bring a lot more to the table than what the quote unquote textbook profile looks like. The other thing that really stands out about this conversation is the need to be flexible. Look for opportunities to take the guesswork out of anything that you're trying to do instead of trying to guess how you and another person can work well together. Why not be transparent and ask those things out loud so you can level set and move forward knowing What you need to know to work productively. Because in small to mid sized organizations, you don't have the luxury of six to 12 months to figure stuff out. That needs to happen right away. For those of you who have listened to the the conversation, leave us a review. Let us know uh, what you thought of the episode. Tune in next time where we will have another great practitioner on the show to give us their game-changing experiences that led them to building high-performance teams. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Impact Show. We hope you liked the conversation. Don't forget to continue supporting us by joining the HR Impact Community can find the community at www.engagerocket.co/hrimpact. Tune in next time where we'll have another guest who's going to share with us the game-changing insights that help them build high-performing teams.